we've only had maybe 10 months where we've lost 500,000 jobs or more in the history of, of our series since 1940. This is four of the 10, all in a row. And welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Laura Conaway in New York. And I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. Today is Friday, March 6th, 2009, in case any of you are waiting to listen to these until the crisis is over. Yeah, we are not there yet in a big way. The new unemployment numbers came out today, and our Planet Money indicator is 8.1. 8 8.1% unemployment rate in the United States. That's the worst since 300 B.C. (laughs) (laughs) When Athena got laid off. No, it's the worst since 1983, though. You just heard Commissioner Keith Hall of the Bureau of Labor Statistics at the top there. On today's show, we're going to take your questions about the unemployment numbers. We're going to hear from an economist who says, hey, it could be worse. And from an editor who says it could be verse. Do not succumb to economic stupidity. That is such a bad pun. We'll have to use it again in the podcast. Later. (laughs) Later, yeah. First, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, yes, indeed, put out a raft, a whole bunch of employment numbers. It revised the jobless rates for the last couple of months, generally in the direction of misery. Since the start of the recession, the economy has lost 4.4 million jobs. We turn to an economist who really, really swims around in employment data. His name's Howard Rosen. He's with the Peterson Institute for International Economics, and he paints the jobs picture like this. Today we learned that there are 12.5 million unemployed people in the country, 12.5 million. And because the unemployment rate tends to, you know, tends to camouflage, what does it really mean? 12.5 million people. Um, that's you know the population of several states in this country. And we have another 8.6 million people who are working part-time because they cannot find full-time jobs. So you're up over 20 million people. That's exactly right. That's my point, which is now you're talking about 20 million people in this country who are either unemployed or underemployed. And now the number, the unemployed number, I don't want to, you know, kind of freak out people, but the unemployment rate then starts, we start talking about 15, 16 percent. All right. That freaks me out. And that becomes, I know, and that becomes much more real because, you know, people are listening to these numbers and they say, you know, 8 percent, that, you know, it's you know, doesn't sound really right. But when you start talking about 15 to 16 percent and they know that a lot of their friends are being affected, then, you know, it starts uh, It starts sounding real. Yeah, it's just like a lot of people who could be doing something who aren't. Yeah, they're just kind of hanging around waiting for the next thing. These unemployment numbers, David, I find that they raise a million questions for me, probably for other people. So we gave the Planet Money crowd a chance to ask theirs over Twitter. Our handle, no surprise, is Planet Money. And we're calling this segment Twitter Questions. <laughs> Howard Rosen climbed into the nest to take really a slew of questions from you guys. Maple fan, what job sector will suffer layoffs next? Next. <laughs> um, 
Well, what we've been seeing and, and we saw today is that, you know, the financial markets are getting hit very hard. Uh, manufacturing has already been under a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, pressure. Uh, so, you know, you start seeing that. I, st- I think the next thing we'll start seeing is what I would call the tertiary industries. Uh, these are the restaurants, the kind of um, personal services and le- leisure and those kinds of things, the travel industry, uh, when people don't have money over the summer to go, you know, traveling, or the local restaurant, uh, or those kinds of things that are, uh, I don't want to say they're luxuries, but uh, they're not the primary expenditures. See, and for so me, I think the- that's what we- I was going to say, a lot of those, that job for me, that's always been sort of like, well, I can always wait tables. And what you're saying is, well, maybe not. Correct. We're already hearing that the fast food places, the McDonald's and all those, where people felt that that was the fallback, that they're already cutting back. Neil Taflinger, do layoffs really indicate that we're nearing the end of a recession? Uh, well, it's a very good question because uh, th- this, is, this has been changing over the last, as I mentioned before, over the last 30, 40 years. It used to be that unemployment was a leading indicator of economic slowdown, which meant that people started laying off uh, their workers first, and that told us that we were getting into an economic slowdown. And that was primarily because workers were expendable. You know, you just, that's the first cost that you get rid of. Now, what we've been seeing within the last 20 years is that unemployment has become a lagging indicator. So, so what happens is the economy starts turning down, and only then does the unemployment start going up. So, for example, I mean, here's a great example where the, the economy declined uh, you know, a real lot in the second half of last year, but the unemployment rate is only really ratcheting up right now. I mean, you know, of course it was increasing, but 5 6%, you know, it's, it's not the end of the world. But when you start getting into the 8 9% realm, then that's really serious. So, and here we are six months after the beginning of the, of the downturn. But again, what I, I, I want to emphasize is that lag is, goes through the whole cycle. So unemployment lags the economic downturn, and the recovery of employment also lags the recovery of the economy. This is from someone in Ohio, which, of course, is a very diverse state. It's got big cities. It's got wide swaths of of rural counties. Olivia asks, is there any significant difference between rural and urban unemployment, and which will recover first? Uh, Another great question. Yes, there, there are profound differences. And, again, it's on the upside. Uh, It's very hard to create jobs in rural areas. Uh, and, you know, you either have to, you know, you have to attract new companies, uh, and it's very, very difficult. And so uh, what we tend to see, first of all, we tend to see higher unemployment rates in rural areas than urban areas. But the stickiness of the improvement or the recovery in employment is also much worse in the rural areas than it is in the urban areas. Again, we see this every day. You walk down the street in urban areas and you see stores opening and closing and opening and closing. So there's a lot of that kind of turnover that goes on. That doesn't happen in rural areas. And uh, so that's, uh, that, 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 that's, that's a big problem for those areas. Okay. This one is tough for me, Howard. I don't understand it, but maybe you will. Okay. Okay. It's from Sell the Kids. Explain the difference between U3, U6, et cetera. Oh, my goodness. So we get a real picture of unemployment. <sighs> the official numbers are not the whole truth. Uh, 
So you three, it sounds like a band, is, um, is the basic unemployment rate that we know, 8.1%. U6 is if you take all these other things that we talked about, what we call marginally attached workers, those workers who are working part-time because they can't find a full-time job, those people who are entering the labor market and can't find, can't find employment. You know, we don't count those people because they're not in the labor market, right? Let's say that you had a child and you're coming back into the labor market and you can't find a job. You don't get counted because you weren't in the labor market before. So these are what we call marginally attached workers. And th this month, that number is estimated to be 15%, which was what I said to you before. So I'm not that far off. I said somewhere between 15, 16. So it was 15%. So the point being is that we, the press, sorry, but you know, the new, you know, we tend to focus on this unemployment number when in fact the effect on people can be almost twice as large. Lane Montgomery wants to know what's being done to make COBRA more affordable. COBRA, of course, is the plan where if you lose health insurance by virtue of losing your job or even leaving your job, you can pay some money to keep it going, right? So if you are eligible for COBRA, you can, get your, you can maintain your health insurance for 18 months. And under the stimulus package, uh, and, you, and as you maintain it for 18 months, you must pay the employer and the employee parts of the cost of the premiums. Uh, and under the stimulus package, you can get a 65%. It's actually a tax rebate, or otherwise known as a subsidy, on the amount that out-of-pocket that you have to pay to maintain your health insurance under COBRA okay. for only 18 months. Okay. And this is one that I think is near and dear to your heart, Howard. Josh Zeal doesn't extending unemployment give discouraged workers less motivation to seek a job? Wouldn't they wait for the best situation? Okay, so we know the conventional wisdom is that if you uh, give people, you pay people some money, uh, that they're not going to work. That, and they're going to sit at home, watch TV, and, you know, just kind of leisurely look for a new job. Uh, that's the conventional wisdom. There is no empirical evidence that that's the truth. Um, we, we, there, there is just no research that finds that uh, people here in the United States on the U.S. unemployment insurance system, uh, that if they receive money, that it prolongs their unemployment. Now, that, that's the first thing on the research. On the second, um, the average amount that we pay people uh, that they receive, the average weekly benefit is $290 a week. Now, again, this is the average across the country. Um, but th that, that obviously, uh, you know, kind of goes up and down based on what state you're in. If you're in Alabama, the average is closer to $200. Uh, in Alaska, it's $200. Um, I, I, one of the ones I thought was interesting was in Louisiana, it's $200. And this is a governor, uh, Governor Jindal, as we heard last week, who does not want to accept federal money to expand unemployment insurance. And that's $200 now, a week again. $200 a week. So now what, what that is, that's basic, you know, that adds up to $800 a month. And what I found, I looked at the average consumption patterns amongst people. Again, this isn't for the state of Louisiana, but it's for people across the country. And we find that if we just add up what people pay on housing and food and uh, utilities, just the basic things that they need, it comes to about, for a family of four, let's say, it comes to about $1,000 a month. So already, people's unemployment insurance is not, is not going to help them meet just their basic needs. All right. Historical question. Last one. 
Mware 1205. For comparison, what is the real level of unemployment using methods of the 1930s, not our lipstick on pig method now? So interesting. It's another interesting thing. Uh, just this morning, <laughs> I pulled down the data from the Department of Labor. You can go to the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, database, and they, in fact, have unemployment numbers that have been adjusted uh, going back to 1930s, 1939. Um, and I'm looking here so I can tell you. Uh, let's say 19. here's one. In 1949, the unemployment rate was 7.9%. Um, so so they, they do have those data. They are adjusted. Um, so we can tell what the unemployment rates are. But um, I want to give a more sophisticated answer, which is um, where I think your, uh, where your Twitter is, is getting to. Um, uh, there are changes in the economy, in the labor market, um, that haven't been uh, – that need to be taken into account when you're comparing unemployment rates. And I'll give you an example. And this is a primary example which is uh, people in prison or, in, uh, or uh, in probation and things like that. Um, we just got the statistics last week that suggested that something like 1 in 10 Americans are in the system, either in prison or at coming out of prison uh, in probation or something like that. Um, well, those people aren't working. <laughs> uh, we don't count them in our unemployment, in our unemployment numbers. So uh, you could argue that our unemployment rate is really 9% because if you count the people who are in prison who aren't working, they're, you know, they're also you know, included. But we don't do that in the United States. And what's interesting is we have uh, many more people, and certainly as a percentage of population, a higher percentage of population in prison uh, than, than almost every other, all other countries, uh, certainly the European countries. And therefore, uh, they, the Europeans argue that's why their unemployment rates are higher than ours. Because they use uh, a different method to count. They use a different method. The other thing is, in the United States, we have – ours is a two-pronged method. We say, were you working in the previous week and are you seeking employment? And you have to meet both tests in the United States to be counted. In other countries, they primarily just ask, were you unemployed? And don't really ask the seeking question. So, again, that's why – um, numbers are much higher in Europe. Unemployment, I mean, we estimate that they're probably about a percent dif percentage point difference because of that. But there are differences. Now, <laughs> I use this as an opportunity to explain this. It doesn't really answer your Twitter's question because he's asking today versus the past. But I think this, this issue of uh, people in the, um, you know, in the criminal system, that, that's an example where that's increased you know, exponentially over the last 50 years, 60 years. And so that would make the unemployment rates different uh, than they were then. One last bit, David, from Howard Rosen. It's an indicator. It's the amount of time a laid-off person can expect to spend looking for a new job. And Howard Rosen says it has been going up with each recession. I, I have no idea what... I mean, I'm trying to guess. I don't really know what it would be. How long is it? Well... In the 1992 recession, Rosen says the average laid-off person got a new gig in about 12 or 13 weeks. In 2001, it was more like 15 weeks. And what about today? 19 or 20. Wow. So if you're laid off today, he says, don't be surprised if you stay laid off for five months, six months, even more. 
Folks, I am sorry that we don't have any better news. Yeah, we're trying. No, we're trying. That today, when that unemployment number comes out, it's just it's not really fun. But we are looking for good news. We've told you this, and we have found one piece, sort of. It's an upcoming book that uh, reminded me that as bad as things seem now, we've actually been here before or someplace like here. I talked with Ken Rogoff, an economist at Harvard. He's one of the authors. And the book has sort of a wry title. So the book is uh, uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff, my co-authors, Carmen Reinhardt. And it's uh, called This Time is Different, Eight Centuries of Financial uh, Folly. So the, the title it, means that every time we have some financial crisis, we say, oh, it's different, it's different, and we're going to learn from it. But maybe well, it's actually it's actually about in the run-up when things look great that we tell ourselves not to worry, and especially our policymakers tell us not to worry. In the case of the United States, there were U.S. Treasury secretaries, uh, Federal Reserve chairmen uh, like Alan Greenspan saying, don't worry that the U.S. is borrowing seven or $800 billion a year. Don't worry that housing prices are soaring. Don't worry that consumers uh, used to have uh, debt to income of uh, 80 90 percent. Now it's 130 percent. These aren't a problem. We have financial globalization. We have better monetary policy. Just don't worry. And each time people uh, try to convince themselves that it's not going to happen here, and of course it always does. That That's really what the theme is. Yeah. So what, what does the survey of 800 years, is that what you said? Mm-hmm. I mean, what does that tell us about the crisis that, that we're in now? I mean, does it give you any insight, any particular insight it, about how long well, it's it, going to be? Or Yeah, it, it does. I mean, so what we find, uh, what Reinhardt and I find is that in many ways, the United States is going down the tracks of a typical deep financial crisis, not just qualitatively, but quantitatively, looking at things like unemployment, income, the trade balance, and especially what's happened to housing prices and equity prices. It's really quite remarkable. You can draw a graph of the run-up of housing prices and the collapse in the U.S., and it seems to trace out what happened in other countries that have experienced deep financial crises. So it does tell us something. I don't know if it's going to cheer you up to hear what it tells us. It tells us. I don't know if that's comforting or alarming. (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, it it tells us that deep financial crises last quite a while. Uh, The recession uh, probably will last at least to the end of 2009 and maybe well beyond that. But even if if it ends at the end of this year or the beginning of next year, uh, unemployment is likely to continue to rise into double digits, 11 or 12 percent. And the most striking finding we have is that in the wake of financial crises, government debt, public debt, soars. And I'm not talking by 10 or 15 percent. The average is 85 percent. So in the case of the United States, $8.5 trillion after three years. And uh, we're, we're unfortunately very much on track to achieve that. A lot of that comes because tax revenues fall and output collapses. Some of it's the bailout costs, which we're choking over at the moment. But a lot of it comes from the collateral damage of the recession. I do find this sort of comforting because, you know, it's easy to think like, you know, we're on the edge of Armageddon. What you're telling me is, no, we've been here before. That's exactly right. So there are 800 years of financial crises, and so far, 
everyone has ended. Now, occasionally a country's lost its sovereignty at the end of it, as Newfoundland, Newfoundland did uh, in the Depression. But, you know, more or less, everyone has ended. Some of them have lasted longer than others. But no, uh, we're not on the edge of Armageddon. You told me last time we talked that another characteristic of recessions is that in the middle of them, they never, ever feel like they're going to end. Well, that's absolutely the case. I mean, uh, economists tend to believe that things eventually go back to normal. So when we're in a boom, we all sound very pessimistic. Economists are very gloomy. But when we're in a deep recession like this, we're the optimists because we've, you know, looked at history, looked at the data, and we know these things end. But you talk to lay people or, frankly, people in financial markets right now, and, you know, they think this is going to be five times worse than the Great Depression. And we're certainly not there yet. Certainly not there yet. See, it, it could be worse. Yeah. Or it could be verse, which is the message from Planet Money's boss editor, Jonathan Kern. Jonathan Kern spends a lot of time juggling and fixing our scripts and making everything work. And even though you don't hear him, he's a critical part of things here. Uh, but the other day, somehow in his spare time, he cranked out a villanelle, which is a, it's a poem. Though banks are suffering a lack of liquidity and teeter on the edge of nationalization, do not succumb to economic stupidity. Though Congress is demanding more rapidity and tugs the strings behind the administration, keep at bay financial rigidity. The credit markets all crave liquidity, and Wall Streeters contemplate defenestration. Do not succumb to economic stupidity. While Keynesians say the budget reeks of tepidity and scorn what's left of privatization, keep at bay financial rigidity. Zealots always demand philosophical solidity. Hasty action always trumps contemplation. Do not succumb to economic stupidity. Human nature involves some cupidity. Self-interest is the market's salvation. Keep at bay financial rigidity. Do not succumb to economic stupidity. That's what I want on the Planet Money t-shirt if we ever get one. Do not succumb to economic stupidity. Right? In big block letters? Yeah. Yeah. Stick with Planet Money, folks. Do not succumb. We'll be back Monday with what I hope will be an amazing story about a sardine can. Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Until then, we're blogging like mad at npr.org slash money. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks to Caitlin Kenny for another week of making the Planet Money podcast not just possible, but fun. Thanks, you guys out there in the audience, for listening. See you on the blog. <laughs>